Amen. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the Word of the living God. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop... He desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house... How will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, living Lord, we pray that by your Spirit we may know the voice of our Shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the inscripturated Word. We pray that the preaching of the Word of Christ would be the Word of Christ to the covenant people of Christ this day. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It was over a decade ago when I believe I last preached on this particular passage of Scripture. For in that season of time, our church had a pastor, and we had deacons, but we had no other elders but myself. And our church was in a state of transition, moving from one pastor and deacons to a plurality of elders, of which the pastor is one and equal. And our church, by God's grace, moved in that direction. And if my records serve me correctly, it was over a decade ago when this particular passage was preached from this pulpit. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, we could also say that elder, overseer, Presbyter are all synonymous words with that word bishop. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. We are in an interim period between two sermon series, and it's necessary that we take a few weeks to deal with a couple of in-house items, specifically that of elders and deacons. As the elders came to you over several occasions, but again last week in our congregational meeting, it is our intent per our constitutional duty to nominate in the coming weeks and months men for both offices. We had two sermons a few weeks ago on the office of deacon, and now before we move into 2 Peter, it's necessary that we refresh our minds about the qualifications for elders Because by God's grace, it may be in the coming weeks and months that nominations are made, and we as a church need to consider what the Word of God says. Now, you may be thinking, well, I'm not an elder. I don't want to be an elder. 
This passage is for others. But I would encourage you to understand that this passage is for the entire church of Jesus Christ. Because for one thing, particularly brothers, but for all Christians, there's really nothing all that outstanding in these qualifications. In fact, except for being able to teach, some scholars like D.A. Carson have pointed out that all of the characteristics find expressions elsewhere. These qualifications are good qualifications for the people of God. Now, some of them particularly apply to men like husband of one wife. But it is that characteristic or quality of able to teach alongside these other qualifications which become necessary observable patterns in the men that are to be set apart by Christ's church to serve as pastors or elders. It's important for us to understand the context of this passage. Paul writing to Timothy, giving instruction on how the church is to be organized. And you need to understand that this is Paul writing to Timothy, but this is Christ making his mind known to the church by his spirit through Paul. This is the will of the living God. That insofar as it rests with us, his church be organized, constituted, gathered together every Lord's Day, led spiritually by elders, and served by deacons. The context just before our passage speaks to a particular order. Notice the order in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence." And then, Paul goes to the scriptures. He goes to the created order. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. This is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of bishop. He desires a good work. The context here is... Paul giving an order, both a created order for men and women, and then moving into the order for Christ's church. Paul has already said that leadership, authority within the church of Christ, is to be for men only. So it shouldn't surprise us then when in chapter 3, verse 1, we read these words, if a man desires the position of a bishop. I don't think I have to belabor this point. But in case there are any guests here today or those of you who are here who are still wrestling with this, it is crystal clear in Scripture that the office of elder, overseer, bishop, pastor, presbyter, they're all words, different words to describe the same office. That office is reserved for men only. Now this list is a requirement for elders, but it is a model for every Christian Turn over to Hebrews just for a moment. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. In the concluding words of the preacher of Hebrews, these words are given in verse 7 of chapter 13. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you. 
This, of course, would be apostles and prophets and evangelists, but also elders, those who rule over the church of Christ, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Elsewhere, not a list of qualifications, but elsewhere, the church is told, consider the outcome of the conduct of those who lead you in the word of Christ. We see similar instruction in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. So while this is indeed a list of things to aspire to, it's a requirement for those for whom the church, seeking to follow the mind of Christ, places in leadership in Christ's church. So let's pick these verses apart then. Notice how the work of eldership, the work of pastoral ministry, the work of bishoping is described. The Word of God says, if a man desires the position, he desires, and notice what it says, a good work. The ministry, the eldership within Christ's church is a good work. We could spend the entire time this morning gleaning from the pages of other passages of Scripture why it's a good work. We won't do that other than to say it's a good work because Christ uses the elders to lead in the preaching and teaching of the Word of Christ. There are elders who stand in baptistries and behind Lord's Lord's Supper tables all across this globe. Each week, doing the good work of handing out and performing the sacraments of the New Covenant. It's a good work because people in times of trouble are prayed for. They're visited. The word is preached. The word is counseled. Of course, there are others in the body who do some of these tasks from time to time. But it's a good work. It's not the only work. And to be clear, as people of Christ who live in two kingdoms, all of us have good work to do. But this is a particular good work within the church of Jesus Christ. So then, if any man desires this office, he desires a good work. Now, without getting into all of the texts that prove this, you need to know that in the version we're using, the New King James, the word bishop is used. That's a fine translation. Just so long as you understand that by bishop is not meant what our Episcopal or Anglican brothers and sisters mean, where there are a tier of offices in the early church and certainly in the New Testament. Bishop meant elder, meant overseer, meant presbyter, and there was a word for what they did. It was a verb, pastor or shepherd. These are all synonymous words. So whatever translation you're using, we're talking about elders or overseers or pastors here. What are the requirements then for these men? Let's look at verse 2. I want us to look at this passage this morning, as we often do, in three segments. First, the office. Secondly, the qualifications. And then thirdly, the task. So first, the office, briefly. We've already looked at this word, but look at verse 1 If any man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, your translations may render this differently. The word desired in the New King James is used twice, but it's two different Greek words. 
The first one is a Greek word which means literally stretching out for something, striving for something. If a man is stretching out for the position of a bishop, and here it's meant in a good way. There are a lot of things that we sinfully covet. There are a lot of things that we strain for or strive for that we ought not. But here it's, it's used in a positive way. If any man desires this, it's a good work that he desires. But the second word desires, he desires a good work, has a sense of earnestness to it. Sometimes the word is used for desire that is not good. Here it's a desire for something that is good. And it's an internal desire. It's an earnest desire. If any man desires the position, this position we've looked at over the last few weeks in various texts, let me remind you of two of them. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 Acts chapter 20, verse 28, we looked at this a few Lord's Day evenings back, but in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, we read these words, Paul with a bunch of elders or bishops, the final time that he would see them says this word, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd or pastor the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. This is Paul speaking to elders. Notice what the text says. That even though in 1 Timothy chapter 3, men can desire this office and they desire a good work, it is ultimately the Holy Spirit which makes men elders or overseers. And their task is to shepherd, to pastor the church of God. I don't want to linger here too long, although it's very tempting. Look at that last phrase, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, boys and girls, we've said this before. God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. God does not have blood. But the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who has always existed, who was never created, who never was not, at a moment in time, assumed a human body just like ours with ears and eyes and a tongue and lips and a face and hair and blood. Blood that he poured out when he died on the cross. And the scriptures speak to many realities of the work of Christ when he died on the cross. His blood was poured out to pay the ransom for our sins. He was punished to the death for our sins. He made atonement No longer would there be sheeps and goats and other sacrifices year after year, for he made a final sacrifice with his blood. But here, the blood of Jesus is pictured. His death is pictured as the death which purchases a church for God. How do you think about the church? A place where you come to get your needs met? A place where you come to voice your opinions. A place where you hope you get good politics. A place where you hope that the nursery is nice and the food at the meals is good. What do you, what do you think about when you think about the church? Because the final instruction that Paul gives these elders is, hey, the church was purchased with the blood of Jesus. Which means that believers all across this room are people that are purchased with the blood of Christ. That is how precious the church is. And so, 
when elders are instructed, these men desiring a good work are reminded that it was a people purchased with the blood of Christ. Now, maybe you're here today and you're not a part of the church. I don't mean you're not a member of a particular church. I mean that you're not a Christian. You're interested or maybe you were invited and you reluctantly came today and you're not really a part of Christ's church. And I know in our day it's not popular to say who is something and who isn't something, but if you don't have faith in Christ alone to save you from your sins, you're not a Christian. And that's not me speaking, that's the Word of God speaking. The Bible defines Christians as people who realize that they've broken God's holy law. And they stand condemned before God. And unless another righteousness provided by another is provided, and unless a death is provided to pay for their sins, they will never be saved and they will never be God's people. Which is why it's so precious to see Paul tell these elders, there are a people that have been purchased, redeemed, ransomed back for God. And those are the people who have faith in Christ. The good news is, as Jesus says in the book of John, chapter 6, Jesus will receive any who come to him. We're talking about some in-house things today, but I don't want you to miss this. Jesus will save you. He will redeem you from your sins. He'll bring you back from the tragedy of your wanderings away from your Creator. He will heal you from the despicable ways in which you've lived and thought and acted. Because he died to save sinners. And any sinner who comes to him, he will not cast out. And when you're a saved one by the blood of Christ, you are a purchased one who belongs to the church of Jesus Christ. So elders are told by the Apostle Paul on the last time in which he will see them, hey, the Holy Spirit has made you a shepherd, a pastor of blood-bought people. We also see in 1 Peter chapter 5, and we won't linger there because we had a sermon on that passage a few weeks ago as well, that it is elders that the church is to submit to. Our confession helpfully describes in chapter 26, paragraph 8, I would encourage you to read that this week, that the church of Christ as an entire body is to select its elders. That's one of the things that makes us different as congregationalists. We have brothers and sisters who are parts of churches where there are a hierarchy of pastors. There's bishops and then under pastors and then deacons and bishops pick pastors and give them to the churches. We have brothers and sisters who have groups of pastors who gather together above multiple churches and they recognize and give a stamp of approval to pastors. They're called Presbyterians. We love them. And then there are congregationalists like us who believe that the entire church in the Bible is seen as having a hand in recognizing these men who desire the good work. But once they recognize them, once the hands have been laid upon them, they're people that the church ought to submit to insofar as they are biblical. Well, the office then is the office of pastoring And it is a good work. The second thing that I think that we see in this text 
and it's the lengthier portion is the qualifications. We've seen the office over the last few weeks and briefly this morning, but we see the qualifications. These are present tense qualifications. Notice Paul begins this way, a bishop then must be blameless. A hyper-literalistic interpretation of that word would rule out every single person but the Lord Jesus Christ. So, blameless becomes, in some scholars' minds, a category that is then described by the rest. Others view blameless as the first among many qualifications. But how is a person blameless? Well, firstly, we can't be blameless without Christ. We must be converted. Elders must be, pastors must be, converted men. They must know the grace of God and the face of Jesus Christ. But blameless doesn't mean sinless. It means much like we see it described of Abraham and other Old Testament characters. A person who is currently walking before the Lord in a way that glorifies Him. If blameless then is a category that is to follow, some will say the pattern of blamelessness is he's a one-woman man. He's temperate. He's sober-minded. He's of good behavior. He's hospitable. And the list goes on. So let's look at this list. The husband of one wife. You could render this a one-woman man. There are many theories to this. And when I say theories, I mean, what does this mean? Is this Paul saying every elder must be married? So single men cannot be elders. But that seems to defy the very pattern of Scripture when there are certain people leading Christ's church, like Paul, who by all accounts were not married. Does this mean that a man who has a wife who dies and he marries another, which 1 Corinthians 7 Verse 39 says is permissible that he can't be an elder because now he's been the husband of two wives. No, this seems to indicate that this man is and has been and will be, by all accounts, godly in his relationship to his wife. That if he has a wife, he is faithful to her. That if he has marriage difficulties in his past, he is sought to do that in a way that is faithful to the law of God. How a man handles his family is seen multiple times as a requirement. I would just submit to you, there will be no elder who will perfectly handle his marriage. But these characteristics are those that we don't hold up and say, we gloat over these men. These men have arrived. Rather, these are characteristics that we can say, these are examples of what Christ calls us all to. And that's weighty. That's weighty. So as we said with deacons a few weeks ago, our task as a church is not to walk around, particularly when nominations are made, and to begin to, to pry and to judge, but we are as the people of Christ called to see, does this brother meet these qualifications? Is he faithful in his marriage? Has he handled his marriage well? This is not just a man who avoids adultery. This is a man who is dedicated fully to his wife in all areas. But notice another word, temperate. Boys and girls, temperate means clear-minded. 
watchful, balanced, sober-minded. This person is one who is not controlled by other things outside of self, except for Christ. You know what it is to be sober. It's not to be drunk. It's not to be intoxicated. It's possible to be intoxicated in this life by more than just drugs and alcohol, you see. It's possible to be drunk on pride, on money. It's possible to be drunk or intoxicated on the winds of doctrines and ideas that come and go. It's possible to be controlled by a lot of things. This person demonstrates a pattern sober-mindedness. Notice the next phrase of good behavior. This is exactly what it says it is. Well-behaved, orderly, virtuous, hospitable. We saw this word hospitable weeks back in our series in First Peter, this is literally a love of caring for strangers. I know that we often think about hospitality in the sense of we need a hospitality team to prepare meals for us on the Lord's Day, or I'm going to show hospitality by inviting friends to my house, and those are expressions ultimately of hospitality, but at its most literal core, hospitable means a person who loves to care for strangers. So... How does the man care for people outside of his own home? Does he have any desire to see them cared for? For God cares for strangers. James chapter 1 verse 27. Deuteronomy chapter 24. So these are the positives. These are the things that this person must be an example in. But then notice there's a list of things that this person must not be. Paul continues. Not given to wine. Here we have one particular example of something that you're not to be controlled by. Now, let me just say this. This is not a prohibition against alcohol. I know that we are in the South. Some would say we still have vestiges of the Bible Belt. We're about 100 years removed or so from prohibition and the temperance movement. And we are right to say, as the scripture says, that a person must not get drunk, ever. But it would be going past the law of God and inventing new laws for us to say, a Christian must never touch alcohol. This person may or may not drink alcohol, but notice what the text says, they're not given to it. They're not controlled by it. They're not ruled by it. They're also not violent. They're able to control themselves with what they eat and drink, but also with their body and their temper. They're not quarrelsome. Notice what it says next. Not quarrelsome. They're able to discuss. They're able to teach. They're able to have conversations, sometimes difficult ones, without becoming quarrelsome. And brothers, I would just submit to us all, we live in a day where it is very easy to become quarrelsome. 
and hide that quarrelsomeness behind a mask of doing it related to theology. We don't need men on the internet spouting off all kinds of cynical quarrels. We need people who lovingly and firmly yet gently teach Christ's people. They're not quarrelsome. They're able to lead, and that's difficult. Because sometimes leadership means you have to go to someone and say, hey, I disagree. Hey, that's a wrong doctrine. Hey, that brother or sister is a wrong attitude or posture. That's sinful. In addition to not giving to wine, not being violent, not quarrelsome, notice, not greedy for money. Not greedy for money. What an elder or a prospective elder does with money is important. Is this person a person who's greedy for it? How easily can he let it go in the service of Christ and others? Notice the text continues that this person is not greedy for money, but gentle not quarrelsome, not covetous. It's difficult in any line of work, in any place in which we're at, to wrestle with breaking the 10th commandment, isn't it? To become covetous, to want what God has given to others. This list of positives, who he must be, and negatives, who he should not be, all by Christ's grace are put before the church for us all to consider. But notice what it says next, verse 4. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? We'll come back to this phrase in just a moment because notice what the next not is in verse 6. Not a novice. This word, by all accounts, novice, means beginner or new convert. And this is one where there's going to be a variety. There may be a church planting movement that occurs in an unreached people group. And those sent by churches over here to unreached people over there are seeing fruit. And now five, six, seven people come to Christ. And that gathering of believers every Lord's Day, led by a missionary pastor for a season, is led by a seasoned man. But at some point, they're all new converts. There may be a variance in what new means in relation to every church. But there's a strong statement here that we ought not to consider a person who is a novice in the faith or a new convert. And then we're told in two different ways about Satan. Startling, isn't it? Not a novice. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. You remember the devil, boys and girls. Once a beautiful angel of light who pridefully wanted to be God. It's really what all of us want to be after the fall. But began to serve himself in his own kingdom instead of the kingdom of God. But then notice in verse 7, 
Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. The devil, who is the pattern of what is bad, is also the one that we're to watch out for, lest we get trapped by him. So we need men who have walked with Christ, who know the faith. This, then, is the office and the qualifications But I want us to see, thirdly, the task. There are at least two things in this passage, and they're related to the qualifications that are mentioned. The first is able to teach, and the second occurs in verse 5 in what most English translations place in parentheses. If a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Now we're given at least two descriptions of the elder's task teaching and leading or managing the church. So let's talk about each of these. Firstly, in verse 2, able to teach. This is the one qualification among the entire list which would be unique. It doesn't show up in the list of qualifications for deacons, although many deacons will teach. If you remember, in 1 Timothy 3, one of the qualifications is that the deacons hold to the mystery of the faith. They know the gospel. They know doctrine. But here, we're told that elders need to be able to teach. They're gifted and capable in teaching. What does that mean? Well, taking the New Testament, it firstly and chiefly means public teaching on the Lord's Day. Public teaching. That's what's primary throughout the New Testament. But there will also be teaching, as Paul did, from house to house. There will also be counseling that occurs. There will also be one-on-one word ministry. Paul tells Timothy in the next book, 2 Timothy 2, two, these words. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's an ability here. Not just a desire. There's an ability. Can they teach others Let's linger here for just one moment. Because this quality stands out in the list as one that is unique to the office, we need to heed it. There will be many brothers who will be able to lead family worship. Perhaps teach a Sunday school class. Perhaps gather teenagers together and give a devotion, rightly opening the Word of God. But when we read here, able to teach, we ought to understand this as a man who can consistently, only by God's grace, open the word of God, explain it faithfully and rightly, applying it by the work of the Holy Spirit to the lives of the people, and by God's grace, seeing the people edified, whether they're seven people or 700 people. It is not simply a man who can stand and talk about God. A man who can stand and say some doctrinal things. But a person who is actually able, as 2 Timothy 2 2 says, to teach Christ's people. So the ability to teach is crucial. We saw a few weeks back, Lord's Day evening, Ephesians chapter 4, that there are elders which Christ has given to his church. 
And they are to do the work of the ministry, which elsewhere the scripture chiefly describes as preaching the word and administering the sacraments. That is the ministry. I encourage you to go and look at that sermon. We often think about that passage because many translations, if you remember, if you were here that evening, many translations render it that elders are set apart that they might equip the saints, comma, to do the work of the ministry. That's the way it should be, but we have some translations that render it that we're to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Well, we are to minister to one another, but the ministry in the New Testament is preaching and sacraments. So we have to have brothers who are able to do these things faithfully. So the task includes teaching, but secondly, by way of discussing his family, it means ruling over his house well. Look at verse five. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And Paul is not trying to be sarcastic here. Boys and girls, in this passage, we see that elders do at least two things. They regularly teach and preach the word, and they manage or lead the local church. They take care of the church. This is a crucial one, brothers and sisters. No man will be a perfect father. No man will perfectly manage his house. But is there a consistent pattern in his life where his household is in order? Where brothers and sisters in the church, not trying to gossip or be judgmental, but can look at him as an example and say, that's a household that that I kind of want to model my leadership in my own household after. There's spiritual leadership. There's instruction. There's discipline in that household. Because if those things don't exist, Paul says, again, I don't think being sarcastic, how is he going to, to lead and care for the church of God, which in many ways has quite a few more issues than our families? But I hope that you see that in giving these qualifications, there are two tasks preaching and teaching, and leading. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, uses the word ruling. These two required observations in capability speak to the main roles of an elder or pastor, teaching and leading. So, as the scripture says elsewhere, who is sufficient for these things? Well, in our own strength, no one is. Over 10 years ago, I sat at a table with a group of men, one of them our co-elder, and we had a discussion about this list. We got to that word blameless, and it was an opportunity for us to say, none of us is blameless in our own record, but only in Christ. But here we are, men who've been saved by the blood of Christ, purchased and brought to his church, who by his spirit have grown. And this is what we need. We need converted men who have been grown by the Holy Spirit, sanctified, 
into men who, when we as a church look at their lives, we can say, this man is not perfect, but this man is a man that evidences a faithfulness in his marriage. He's temperate. He's, he's sober-minded. He, he has good behavior. He, he loves strangers. He's able to teach us. I have to say this too, brothers and sisters. The church of Christ needs a good amount of time to know whether a man is able to teach. I grew up in a tradition where the way that you got your next elder was a committee got a resume. They flipped through all the resumes. They picked the ones that seemed to be the best, maybe two or three, and they brought them in. And then eventually they got down to one guy and they said, come preach a sermon. The committee may have heard a sermon or two, but now the church is going to hear one sermon and know whether that person is able to teach. It has to exist in some ways in that way in some circles. But brothers and sisters, what we want to do here is to have the opportunity to see over a period of time, if God gives it to us, can a person handle the word of Christ? So this is the office, the qualifications, and the task. Now let me speak to you who are here in two ways. And we're finished. First, to the unbeliever. If, if you haven't read throughout all of the Bible, there's a consistent pattern in the Bible of God's people having shepherds, leaders. In the Old Testament, in several instances, the leaders of the Old Testament people of God were exposed, disciplined, told that they didn't do well at shepherding. In the New Testament, the titles are different, but the New Covenant people, the people that were purchased by the blood of Christ, were given shepherds. In both the Old and the New Testament, the leaders of Christ's people are simply workers for Christ, who the Bible says, John 10, is the shepherd. You need to know that Christians are millions of people, billions if you consider those who are with Christ, who have been bought by his blood, who are gathered together until they're with him at death or he returns, and they're given shepherds. Those shepherds are tasked with reminding them over and over and over and over again about Jesus' words. So if you're not a believer, you need to understand that Christ died for his people and desires that they grow, and so he gives them shepherds. Thus the qualification. If you're a believer, much of what we've talked about perhaps is old news to you today. But if you're a believer who is a member of this church, we have a duty, we have a duty to consider this passage of Scripture. If there are men put forward to the congregation for the office of elder, here is our task. Are we looking at a brother who meets these qualifications? So today, brothers and sisters, we look at Christ's desire for his church. And today, friend, if you're here and you're not a believer, Consider, if Christ is so concerned for his church that he would die for her 
and seek to make his mind known for what is best for her, why would you ever, ever, ever look for a savior elsewhere? Run to Christ, who is the true shepherd of his sheep. Let's pray. Living God, help us, your people, this day to get this text right, to love it along with the rest of your word, to praise you for what you have done in purchasing a people for God by your blood, Lord Christ, and giving your church officers, fallible men who by your Spirit's work alone have been redeemed and have been brought to a state where they may lead Christ's people. What a weighty thing. We pray that you would help us. Should you give us candidates in the future, Lord Christ, we pray that we might rightly consider this passage and that we might rightly consider that you have given these men, if the church sets them apart, now and down through the ages, as people through whom your word, your gift comes to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.